And these are the words of the one and only God. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, you indeed have raised up your Son and exalted Him. You have given Him the name that is above every name. And we pray as we turn now to your inspired word that you would give us eyes to see that reality more clearly, that you would give us ears to hear, that we might be nourished in our faith, built up on it in Christ, rooted in Him, and established in our faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Please be seated. Well, in 1971, a musician by the name John Lennon of a little rock band you surely know named The Beatles released what would become one of the most enduring and successful songs in all of rock and roll history. And the premise of the song was really rather simple. It was the hope that mankind could be unified as one people, one society, even one humanity. And the way to get there was to start by imagining. In fact, that is the very title of the song, Imagine. As in, imagine a world without countries. Perhaps then there would be no more war. Lenin continues. Imagine a world without possessions. Maybe then there would be no more stealing, no more coveting. And most of all, Lenin says, imagine a world without religion. For it is religion, after all, in his mind at least, that breeds the deepest forms of division and disunity. And so the opening lines of his song you may well, may well remember, went like this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. 
And that sums up Lenin's so-called message of hope and his plea to imagine. But there's a sense in which Lenin is exactly right. In that, what you believe about eternity, your convictions about eternity, absolutely shape and inform the way you live in the present moment. But I wonder if Lenin just plagiarized this thought experiment from none other than the Apostle Paul, because as I'm sure you noticed, he is doing a little more than mimicking what Paul said thousands of years earlier, when Paul likewise exhorted the Corinthians to just imagine. But the difference you'll soon see is that Paul's imaginative exercise is not one of fluffy hope with a strumming guitar. No, instead, it is one of complete despair. When he asked the Corinthians, just imagine a world with no resurrection. More to the point, imagine a world in which Christ has not been raised from the dead. But gloriously for them and for us, Paul does not put down his pen after teasing out this gloomy hypothetical. He goes on to proclaim the truth that he is risen and that the tomb is empty. But before that peak, Paul takes us through this necessary valley to accentuate just how beautiful it is to say and to confess Christ is risen. And so the main point for us to consider this morning is quite simply that the empty tomb calls for a full faith. An empty tomb summons us to a fuller faith. And we'll walk through this text in two simple portions, looking firstly at the gloom of no resurrection, only to turn to the gladness of Christ's resurrection. And so firstly, the gloom. You can see immediately from this text that if there is no resurrection, then there's this cascading effect of doom upon doom, like one domino of despair knocking over and hitting the next domino of despair. And you can see Paul gets right to this idea in verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed risen from the dead, why, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? Now, we're not entirely sure why in Corinth, but there is this objection, opposition to the resurrection, perhaps claiming, yes, sure, Jesus of Nazareth, he was raised from the dead, but that doesn't mean that everybody else is going to be raised from the dead. Or maybe it's a hyper-spiritualization of the resurrection. That what, what really matters is my soul, not so much my body per se. And you should know that our modern day is no exception to that line of thought. A recent very influential modern theologian once uh, argued vehemently against the physical resurrection, against it as a historical fact. But he said, no biggie, because what really matters is that Jesus has risen in my heart. Perhaps that is the kind of view that Corinth would have endorsed. But Paul, as we'll see, will have none of it. And he is out to demonstrate that Christ's resurrection and your resurrection are inseparably bound together. That they are in an unbreakable union. And that is right where he goes in verse 13. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead in general then not even Christ himself has been raised. See, Paul's going to argue, you cannot separate the two. It's all or nothing. If Christ is raised, 
then all those who are in Christ are also raised. And if not, well, just watch the argument unfold. Just watch the dominoes begin to fall and just watch this chain reaction of despair as Paul carries out those consequences to the furthest extent possible and just feel the implications of dread upon dread. And now Paul intends to take us at the end from doom to delight and to re-anchor our hope in Jesus Christ and what it means to confess he is risen. And so that said, so what if Christ has not been raised? First domino to fall. Verse 14, Paul says, our preaching is in vain. Paul is saying, if Christ is not raised, then his message, his preaching, all of his suffering, all of his apostolic anguish to get the gospel out, the very gospel that led to the Corinthians' conversion, Paul says, literally Greek word, empty. It is empty. Consequently, my preaching right now is empty. Whoever is preaching across town, it is empty. Whoever is preaching across this land, this Lord's day, it is empty. In fact, if I could just push it further, if Christ has not been raised, what you need to do is leave here now and go to the nearest grocery store and find the clerk who is throwing out the old produce and get the rotten tomatoes and come back here and feel free to hurl them at whoever is preaching from this pulpit week in, week out, because Paul says... The message you are listening to is as shallow as it is hollow if Christ has not been raised. Next domino. Verse 14, Paul gets, we could say, uncomfortably personal because he says not only will there be nothing to preach, there will be nothing to be believed. For verse 14, he says, now your faith would also be empty. And in that, we're reminded so clearly that what makes faith so special and so precious is not so much the faith in and of itself, but the object of your faith. Upon whom is that faith of yours laid upon? Upon whom is that faith of yours resting? And Paul says, if Christ be not raised, then your reliance, your dependence is upon a dead man whom God has abandoned to the grave if Christ has not been raised. This leads him right into the next link of the chain reaction of despair in verse 15. That from the grandest mission organization to the smallest evangelist, all of them would be, quote, misrepresenting God. Literal Greek expression, they would be false witnesses. You would be a false witness every time you open your mouth and say, come and believe on Jesus Christ. Come and in him you will have eternal life. Paul says you are giving a false testimony if Christ is not raised. But the apostle is just getting warmed up. Notice verse 16. He reminds us of the indissoluble link. To deny the general resurrection is equivalent to denying Christ's resurrection. And then verse 17, he hammers away again and he declares something as precious as your faith to not only be empty, but also futile. That in terms of its function, it is useless. It is pointless. 
It is about as useful as putting water into a bucket with a hole in it to drink from later. Utter futility. And that this gospel is not good news, but is in fact a colossal hoax. Fit for only the most delusional, benighted of people. If Christ is not raised. Perhaps at this point you say, Paul, I've just gone too far, my friend. How can you say something as precious as faith? To be vacuous, to be vain, to be, to be futile. Oh, but you see, he is a step ahead of you already. For he gives his reason in verse 17 that here is why. Because you are still in your sins. Now you can imagine, at this point, maybe a Corinthian in the back pipes up, puts his hand up. Oh, Paul, you, you misunderstood me. I confess Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I confess he was crucified for my sins. I'm just questioning, uncertain on the resurrection part. Paul replies, I heard you, friend, loud and clear. And if there is no resurrection of Christ, then your life would still be one dominated by the power of sin, under the curse of sin, under its penalty, and you would still be a child of Adam, a child of wrath, and without hope in this world. And every blessing from the life and death of Christ would be all for naught. Plainly put, that if the tomb is not empty, then your faith is. And he even includes in verse 18, perhaps as we're now all saying, Paul, we've, we've heard enough. We can hear no more. You've got us. He writes in verse 18 that even those who have fallen asleep, those who have gone before us, those who have died, those whom we hope to see again, he says, well, they would be, in this case, just like Christ. Perishing, perishing, if he has not been raised. Friends, do you feel the, the gravity, <laughs> the sobriety of what he is saying? So often the gospel message is, is limited, is constrained to, quote, Jesus died for my sins, end quote. To which, of course, we could only say yes and amen. That is the very heart of the gospel. Yes, that he took it to himself and paid the penalty for our sins. But Paul says in the same breath, if you stop talking there, it is a woefully incomplete gospel. It is a gospel in which death still wins and you would still remain in your sins. In other words, no gospel at all. And trying to get us to think that the cross and the resurrection, while distinct, can never be separated. That as Romans 4 says, that Jesus was delivered over for our trespasses and raised for our justification. But I'm not done, because Paul is not done with this sobering hypothetical. There is one more nail in the coffin as you look at verse 19, when Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, implication, and not in the life to come, we should be pitied above all people. So the person out there who says, well, Christianity, I mean, at least it's got some good practical advice, right? It's got some good tips on how to be more moral, more religious, even if all the historical details aren't exactly true, right? It's still got some cash value to it. 
Paul says, no, no. Think of the poorest, most dejected, most pitiable person you know, and you, Christian, out-pity that person. You are in a more miserable estate, and you outdo that person because you have built your life upon a house of sand and on a delusion if Christ has not been raised. And so Paul has just pummeled the Corinthians with the bleakest portrait that we all share in if Christ be not raised. And hopefully I, if I have done my job, have inflicted you with some pain, some despair of what life would be like as you imagine this. And so do take a breath and prepare your heart for what perhaps I'm sure to them were the sweetest of words when in verse 20 Paul writes this literally, but now Christ has been raised. But now Christ has been raised. And maybe we're right to ask, why would Paul put them through this? Why would I put us through this? Well, I think we have a reason if we said that everything that Paul just stated negatively is that much more gloriously and abundantly true. That if the hypothetical is as bleak and as bad as just described, and it would be, how much greater is the reality? If that is how bad it would be, how much greater is the truth? But now, preaching is not in vain. It is heralding the living Savior. But now, your faith is not futile. It is faith in the one who always lives to intercede for you. But now, we do not bear a false witness, but the gospel is the very power of God. But now, we are no longer in our sins, for he was raised for our justification. But now, the dead are not perishing, but they are present with the Lord. And but now, you do have hope, not simply in this life, but in the life to come. And the reason is, is that the last Adam was raised from the grave. And let me ask how often it is we profess, yes, Jesus was raised from the dead, and boy, that's, that's great. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a wonderful thing? And we're, I fear, somewhat like the blind man, perceiving trees. You can't quite see it clearly enough that we've not allowed the weight of God's word to hit us when it says you are to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God because your Savior lives. And so with that in mind, now that we have tasted the gloom, let us turn to the gladness of what it means to confess Christ is risen. And you wonder, how can Paul overturn all those dreadful hypotheticals simply by proclaiming Christ has been raised in verse 20? And I think the best place to start is to notice the way that is phrased. He has been raised. In other words, it has been accomplished. It's done. God has acted in history. He has performed his great work. See, from Buddhism to Islam to Hinduism to so many other religions, it is here is what man can do to ladder his way up to heaven. And Paul is saying, here is what God has done in this world by his great might. That on that Sunday morning, with the whole cosmos holding its breath, 
with a kingdom of darkness trembling, with angels yearning, wondering what would be the answer to Jesus' prayer. Father, glorify me. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What would come? Incidentally, if you're here this morning and, and not a Christian, you should know that you will face an enemy. An enemy that all of us face. An enemy that you will face and that you will lose to. And that enemy's name is death. And scripture testifies that the reason you and I face this enemy and lose to this enemy is that our sin has earned us this conflict and this losing battle. And so powerful is this enemy that not only do you face it, you, in a sense, already live in it in a kind of walking death. And the death that is physical only leads to even an eternal death itself. So hear the good news this morning. But now God has given one who has undergone death and its penalty and who has risen victoriously over the grave. As you can see that God did answer his prayer and he did glorify him when he raised him up and exalted him not a little bit higher, but far above all rule and authority and power and dominion such that Paul can even make fun of death. Where is that victory of yours? Where is that sting of yours? It has been lost. And Christian, do you share that confidence? Where ought you to look for it? You might remember that great story from the book of Numbers where the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness and God sends those fiery serpents upon them and bites them with the bite of death. And then what does Moses do? Makes that bronze serpent and it ascends, it rises up. And how simple was that commandment? You've been bit, you're dying. Look up, look up, look up and you will live. And that is the gospel, isn't it? Look up, look up, look up and behold your king resurrected. And do you think he would be resurrected without you? Do you think he would be resurrected apart from you? And Paul's trying to get us to see, no, as goes Jesus, so goes his people. And the resurrection is as if God is preaching his own sermon and the tomb is God's pulpit and God is shouting out, yes, here is proof positive that the payment of sin, of your sin, of my sin, is fully satisfied. Behold the risen King. And in that vein, we have one final concept to look at in regards to the resurrection. Verse 20, as Paul has just expounded so much of his hypothetical, verse 20, he now interjects this interesting little phrase when he says that Christ is the, quote, First fruits of our resurrection. A word that packs a big punch. And to unpack it, maybe I could start by this simple statement. We could say this simply means that Jesus is, was, the first person to be resurrected. First person to be resurrected. Now maybe the Bible scholar in you goes, no, 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 no. Preacher, you're wrong on that. Plenty of people were resurrected before him. Lazarus was resurrected before him, and Jairus' daughter, and Elijah, and we can just go on down the list of resurrections before Christ. Of course, but you see, Lazarus rises only to die again. And Jairus' daughter rises only to die again, and everyone else who was resurrected 
rises only to fall again. As if Paul is trying to get us to see this one, this resurrection is of a quality entirely its own. Remember a few years ago we started a garden at our home. We spent all season tilling, fertilizing, cultivating, and then as the time for harvest was finally upon us, we picked one person for the honors to, to pick the first crop, and in this case, the honors went to my wife. And so my wife, with all of us gathered around her, would go out and we pick what I believe this first crop to be was a carrot. And I promise you've never seen people more excited over one single carrot. And why? Well, because we knew that that one carrot is like a token. It's like a symbol that there is a harvest coming after it. That one carrot, of course, doesn't stand in isolation. It is literally organically connected to the rest of the harvest. And it serves as its representative. And that is Paul's point. Christ's resurrection is the confirmation, the pledge, the guarantee of your resurrection and my resurrection. It is the first fruit. And that is what Paul is trying to show us. That all of humanity is either in that garden of life or in a barren tree under your first father. And that's his exact point in verse 21. That as through a man, Adam, came death, by another man, Christ, has come the resurrection of the dead. In Adam all die. In Christ all are made alive. It is the tale of two Adams. It is the tale of Scripture either the garden of life or a tree of death. And that is why Paul can make such outrageous statements. If, Paul is, or if Christ is not raised, then call the whole thing off. It's a sham. And perhaps the sobering question for you this morning is do you believe that? Do you embrace that? Or do you ever catch yourself living as if those hypotheticals Maybe they're not all that hypothetical. And your worst moments, maybe it is the, the doubtful thought. Maybe my faith is in vain. Maybe my faith is pointless. Maybe the message that I bring is just one of, of good advice and nothing more. Maybe my hope, I've overextended it and I don't have that much hope after all. Christian, hear the good news once again this morning. But now, but now, Christ has been raised. A most precious truth that the harvest is already begun because he has already been raised. And so as we begin to close, let us consider but four implications of that truth. Four implications of the truth that he is risen. Firstly, an increased faith. Paul, after all, has been very clear. If no resurrection, then your faith is empty. It is pointless. It is vacuous. Well, take the reverse. That Christ is risen means that at no point is your faith in vain. At no point is your faith resting upon that which is empty or futile. At no point would you look back and say, oh, why? Why did I believe so much? Why did I trust him so much? I should have, I should have reserved a little. No, the resurrection is the clarion call of increased trust and dependence on the one who has trampled death by his death 
and his life. Kids, perhaps you can recall maybe time at school, maybe time at camp, maybe some other place and seeing a flagpole. Maybe you've seen the raising of a flag. You drive by and you see the flag starting there at the bottom and then whoever's out there and they're furiously pulling those pulleys and the flag does what? The flag rises to the top. Have you ever wondered why is the flag at the top? What is it doing up there? Well, the flag is at the top because that is the position of honor, of greatness, of majesty. And kids, you should know God raised up Jesus Christ and exalted him to the position of highest honor, highest magnitude. And he calls upon you to believe in this risen Savior. Secondly, not only an increased faith, but a, a confidence in defending the faith. A confidence in defending the faith. Again, Paul has been very clear. If there is no resurrection, every time that you share or defend the gospel, you are a liar. So take the reverse. At every point, the Christian is heralding the true authoritative witness that cannot be refuted. The Christian is bearing witness to the work of God that he has accomplished in the world and raising up his son. That should, that could, that ought to yield tremendous confidence and persistence, even a bold humility in proclaiming and defending the faith. Thirdly, an endurance in suffering. An endurance in suffering. To be clear, the resurrection, a resurrected life, does not mean the eradication of evil, of suffering, and tribulation as so many would think they could preach. Yet, while the resurrection life does not mean the end of suffering in this age, it absolutely does mean the redemption of suffering, of our sufferings. That what is it that Job, for instance, could bank on in his worst moments, with his body aching, with his heart broken, with his soul crushed, Job could say, I know, I know, my Redeemer lives. And the Christian can say the very same thing. Lastly, an abiding hope. An abiding hope. There's this great scene from The Lord of the Rings where that faithful hobbit Sam Ganji turns to Gandalf. You probably know this line, but faithful little excited Sam turns to Gandalf and asks him, Gandalf, is it really the case that everything's sad? is going to come untrue. And surely you've had a similar thought, that as you look out on this beautiful world that God made, the question pops into your mind, is everything sad going to come untrue? And Paul's answer to that question is, yes, everything sad will be untrue, that there shall be no more mourning or crying or sickness or pain, or even death, and all things shall be made new. And the reason is, is because he is risen. Christians, we are to be ready to give reason for the hope that is in us. And maybe a more fundamental question to ask is, do we have that hope that is in us? Is it spilling out of us? Is it coming forth from us as those who know more and more of the living Savior? Well, let us start here with the God of hope. 
To him be the glory, for he is the only one who by the working of his great might raised up his son and seated him at his right hand. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we praise you that you did not abandon your son to the grave, that death could not hold him down, that you raised him up by your great power, and because you have not abandoned him, neither will you abandon us. We praise you that there is an awesome sense and that even now, right now, we have died with Christ, we have been raised with Christ. Help us then to live as those who have been raised to walk in a newness of life, even as we look forward to the final coming and the final resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen.